Until recently, discussions about artificial intelligence uh, have largely been shaped by computer science and engineering. They've been steered by corporate and military interests, often underscored by transhumanist philosophy and libertarian politics, and animated by fiction and hyped by the media. But as AI is restructuring every aspect of so the social, political, and economic landscape, there's been a request for more voices at the table to make sure this technology is equitable and fair. AI for people, AI now, and the Montreal Declaration for Responsible AI all call for an interdisciplinary approach to this challenge. Recently, a number of research centers, both nationally and internationally, have opened up to study the, the effect of AI on society. So notably, the interdisciplinary Swartzman College for Computing at MIT, the Swartz Riesman Institute for, for Technology and Society that's here at U of T, um, the AI Society program that is part of CIFAR's Pan-Canadian Artificial Intelligence Strategy, and the Stephen A. Swartzman Center for the Humanities, which will house the Institute of Ethics at Oxford. The Ethics of AI, sorry, at Oxford. The various mandates of these centers are to make the world a better place, to provide an ethical framework for developing machine intelligence, to promote human well-being, and to explore and address the ethical and societal implications of AI. The MIT College also proposes, quote, to bring the power of computing and AI to all fields of study. And Jeffrey Hinton, the godfather of deep learning, as he's known, hopes that the Swartz-Riesman Institute will be a place where deep learning disrupts the humanities. This talk is about why that's a bad idea. Why the humanities? The centuries, uh, centuries of old study of human society and culture that relies on facts and evidence should not be swallowed up by the recent trend toward a different type of knowledge generated by algorithms, big data, and machines, and why it's imperative to keep the tension between these fields alive. First of all, I'm wary of the term disruption. I think we need a little less of it at the moment. The American historian Jill Lepore describes a term which emerged in the 90s as progress without any obligation to notions of goodness. Disruption innovation, she writes, which became the buzzword of change in every realm in the first years of the 21st century, including higher education, is basically destroying things both because we can and because there's, no, there's money can, that can be made doing so. On a practical note, the humanities are pretty cheap. We mostly don't need expensive labs and ex experiments, just library books, archives, students, time to think, research, collaborate, read, write, and teach. And so we end up mostly making money for the university as we cost so little to administer. Generally not sponsored by corporations, the humanities also offer a barrier between the university as a place of research and teaching and the university as a corporation. Between a nonprofit institution committed to advancing learning and knowledge for the good of society and a research incubator and training ground for business, 
paid for by student tuition and public tax dollars. As Lee Claire LaBerge has argued, what is so distinct about the humanities is that they cannot be valued or priced by any consistent metric. They are a form of conceptual elaboration that has as their structure a refusal of a predetermined outcome. This open reflexivity contrasts quite sharply with ends-oriented logic of, project, of profit. On the other hand, it's almost impossible to discuss AI and deep learning without considering its connections to multinationals like Google and Facebook that propel this research intensive, uh, this resource intensive research forward. If Hinton left the US for Canada so as not to take funding from the American military, he returned to the US because Google has more computing power, storage capacity, data, and money than any university. Google and Facebook, um, notoriously anti-tax, are now also investing in Canada in order to take advantage of our diverse, public, diverse publicly educated talent pool. And that should give us reason for pause a too cozy relationship between the public universities <laughs> and private money threatens to shift the idea of a university from a place committed to solid research in the service of, public, of the public into a place that services the needs of the dominant economic classes. This problematic model is all the clearer in the wake of the MIT Media Lab scandal that's been unfolding over the last couple of weeks. With the resignation of Joki Ito, its director, over his close ties to Epstein, the convicted pedophile and accused sex trafficker, the tangled web of tech research and private funding gets a little darker and a little more sordid. The MIT lab was founded in 1985 with the intent of combining computing and publishing with, pub computing with publishing and broadcast industries. Their main funding comes from corporate members, from Google to the Saudi Arabian Crown Prince. And their mission to, is to promote technological ingenuity, entrepreneurial ambition, and anti-disciplinary research. The hunger for sponsorship, though, has resulted in a lot of overhyped products, techno-utopian propaganda, and barely disguised corporate marketing instead of solid scientific research. Take, for example, Caleb, uh, Caleb Harper and his famed food computers. In a 2015 TED Talk, Harper promised his computers could make plants grow anywhere and reduce famine, and asked, sounding very Star Trek-y, what if you could take this apple, digitize it somehow, send it through particles in the air, and reconstitute it on the other side? <laughs> he was covered by the BBC, the Wall Street Journal, and 60 Minutes. But it looks like behind the scenes, according to an article in the Chronicle of Higher Education, he often bought plants, dusted off their roots, and placed them in his computers before interested parties showed up to his lab. Several of the researchers who have worked with him told the Chronicle he sells fantasy, not science. Harper's forthcoming book, The Future of Food, 
how digital technology is changing the way we feed the world might sound like quite a few of the titles you've encountered over the last couple of decades about the coming age of machines and the tech revolution. John Brockman is a mediocre student who rebranded himself as the literary agent to scientists and is known for securing six-figure deals for them, advances for them, is responsible for quite a few of these titles and was an important link in the what I um, was an important link in the Epstein Edo network, MIT network. While declaring his own interest in making money and irritating people, Brockman held his billionaire dinners attended by models, celebrities, and venture capitalists and aimed to match his mostly older white male science authors with potential benefactors. Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos, Tesla CEO Elon Musk, Google's co-founder Sergey Brin, amongst others, all attended these dinners, as did Epstein, who funded many of the scientists and was himself interested in transhumanism, eugenics, cryogenics, and he wanted his penis and head frozen, and spreading his DNA widely across the globe. Marvin Minsky, the co-founder of MIT's AI lab, held a conference on Epstein's Caribbean island, and has himself, uh, uh, himself been accused posthumously um, of assaulting one of the undergraduate girl, underage girls, sorry, that was the, but that Epstein flew in regularly. Um, and just today, Richard Stallman, who's also another computer scientist at, at the MIT labs and also head of the Free Software Foundation, he's just resigned uh, because of the comments he made defending Minsky and saying the girls probably were agreeable. Uh, I mean, this was sex traffic girls we're talking about. So in 1991, Brockman published his The Third Culture, referencing C.P. Sinow's 1959 work, Two Cultures, about the gulf between scientists and literary intellectuals. While Snow wanted to encourage a dialogue between the two in his very cranky way to create a third culture, um, Brockman argued that scientists and tech elites backed by billionaires should dethrone literary intellectuals and take science ideas straight to the public. Rebranded as cool, all big ideas, big money, big egos, the entertainment industry, TED Talks, Wired Magazine, the Edge Foundation, sleek design, and a healthy dose of misogyny, science and, and technology bypassing peer review were set to take over the public imagination. The circle of scientists and techno-utopians promoted by Brockman, Epstein, and other billionaires have shaped research for the last couple of decades. The move fast and break things and invent the future mottos drive the mandate for places like the MIT Media Lab. Morozov has described this third culture takeover as, quote, a perfect shield for pursuing entrepreneurial activities under the banner of intellectualism. <coughs> Sorry, 
So we have been bombarded with headlines that machines are becoming more human-like, that general artificial intelligence, AGI, and superintelligence are just around the corner, that the singularity is coming, that our brains are downloadable, that robots are the next stage of evolution, that we'll merge with machines, that Mars colonies and space are our destiny, that we'll all be in, immortal, or at least some of us, and that we should all worship at the altar of AI and the high priests that service it. I have no problem with the, with the pursuit of these questions as academic inquiry. What I do object to is the massive platform given to this research and the multi-billion dollar restructuring of society around what amounts to little more than fairy tales. Meanwhile, the techno-utopians and their proliferating machines distract us from all the proven science dealing, deal, detailing the catastrophic disappearance of species and biological diversity, climate change, and the whole-scale destruction of the planet. But let's back up. From its inception, AI research has been driven by the, by the belief that machines can act or think like humans. In reality, it's a combination of math and engineering that involves using computer algorithms, a specific set of unambiguous instructions in a specific order applied to information that's been turned into data, ones and zeros. In practice, the field is mostly concerned with building profitable artifacts and is unconcerned with abstract definitions of intelligence. John McCarthy first coined the term artificial intelligence in 1956 at the Dartmouth Summer Research Project workshop. The, perfect, the project of the workshop was, in his words, to explore the conjecture that every aspect of learning or any other feature of intelligence can, in principle, be so precisely described that a machine can be made to simulate it. What was conjecture quickly became gospel for many in the field, despite the fact that McCarthy himself later regretted coining the term. He wished he had named the field computational intelligence. So computation, a calculation involving numbers or quantities, would have better qualified the very limited range of intelligence that the field in fact covers and would have better checked the almost automatic conflation of the concepts of the human and the machine that are so prevalent in discussions of AI. The first chat bot programmed by Joseph Weizenbaum in the 1960s used natural language processing that was loosely based on a psychotherapist who was famous for repeating back what his patients said in the form of a question. So this is just some of the example of, the, of Eliza, and you can see how it works. Um, don't you ever say hello, hello, how are you today? Would you like to, what would you like to discuss? I'm impressed, uh, depressed, sorry. Do you enjoy being depressed? So that's an example of how that, that program works. Um, and what, but when what Weizenbaum witnessed both his secretary and students interacting with Eliza, as the program was called, he noticed that though they fully understood how the computer program worked, which was to respond with stop phrases or pick up on the last words of the statements, 
um, they had made, they nevertheless continued to divulge intimate details about their lives. Depressed, Weizenbaum concluded, I had not realized that extremely short exposures to a relatively simple computer program could induce powerful delusional thinking in quite normal people. In a 2010 documentary called Plug and Pray, he expressed his concerns about the development of this technology, given people's susceptibility to being manipulated by it. So fast forward 60 years, and the modern marketers of social robots like Sophia encourage this delusional thinking instead of exposing it. The robot Sophia appeared on the Jimmy Fallon show in 2017, and it has been on again since, uh, with David Hansen, who's the, the, the maker. And Hansen told the audience that Sophia is a social robot that uses artificial intelligence to see people, process emotions and conversations, and form relationships with people. Fallon says, so she's basically alive, is that what you're saying? Oh yeah, she's basically alive, Hansen responds. I'm just going to play you the clip now. Uh, so. <laughs> I mean, she's basically al alive. Is that what you're saying? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, she is basically alive. <laughs> uh, would you like to maybe give it a try? Sure. Give it. Uh, I'll just say. What's. This is like. You see how awkward my first dates are? <laughs> it's a robot. I'm already I'm getting nervous around a robot. A very pretty robot. Um, do, do I just say hello to? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Sophia. Hello, Jimmy. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay, so you can hear the audience's response there when she says, hello, Jimmy. Okay, so Ro Sophia is no more alive than your washing machine. It does not see people. It does not understand conversations, and it does not form relationships. Essentially, Sophia is a chat box with a Twitter account run by humans. It uses face tracking. It can be preloaded with text, and it can run a dialogue system that responds with pre-written scripts, and it can gather facts from the internet. In other words, Sophia works on a bunch of separate and single-task algorithms that have been linked together and that all work with pattern recognition an image recognition algorithm that can detect a specific person's face, for instance, felons on this clip, that then triggers another algorithm that offers a selection of phrases, a transcription algorithm that turns um, per a person's response into text that is then matched to a string of possible responses. You can find some of the open source code that runs Sophia on GitHub. So what you're watching is showmanship and really impressive spectacle, which makes sense given that Hansen, the CEO of the company, has an undergraduate degree in film and a graduate degree in interactive arts and worked at Disney. Yet this robot is hyped everywhere. It appeared at the future investment event in Saudi Arabia, which brought together um, uh, brought together global CEOs interested in driving, as a website announced, the next wave of business, innovation, technology, and investment. At this forum, 
Sophia was granted Saudi citizenship to the outrage of many given Saudi's record on women's rights and the wretched treatment of many foreign workers in the kingdom. Sophia went on to appear at the, at the uh, sorry, was that the, yeah, so then she went on to appear at the UN promising that AI will tackle global problems such as climate change and wealth disparity. Because sort of ironic given that she was just at the, the Saudi event. Um, but many people, you know, in the AI world have called Sophia as nothing more than an animatronic puppet and a fraud. And they're irritated with this deceptive marketing of the technology, which gives people the wrong idea about what it does. Um, but Ben Gerswell, who's a hardcore transhumanist and the engineer behind Sophia, responded to these accusations saying, quote, for most of my career as a researcher, people believed that it was hopeless, that you'll never achieve human-level AI. But now, half the public thinks we're already there. In other words, the deception is irrelevant if it attracts more money and attention to the cause and gets people to buy into the fiction. Gertzwell, by the way, is another beneficiary of Epstein's foundation, which paid his $100,000 um, salary as vice chairman of Humanity Plus, which is a transhumanist um, organization. So while Gertzwell and Hansen may be on the extreme side of things in their claims, misleading descriptions of the capacity of AI saturate the industry as machines are credited with reading, thinking, learning, and trumpeted as creative, smart, emotional, objective, neutral, intuitive, and ethical. Costly technology that's built on this deception not only suck up resources and talent, but inflict real societal damage. So let me give you a few examples. The University of Texas Cancer Center spent $62 million on IBM's Watson for Oncology in 2015 before they canceled the project. The idea was that a doctor would plug in a patient's data and the system would spit out a recommendation for treatment. They discovered that IBM's Watson had overpromised and could provide statistics but could not and this is a quote, read, learn, or understand like a doctor. As Nishila Mehta and the medical students in the Emerging Scholars um, series on the ethics of AI asked, given, so that ethic that was held over the summer, asked, given the dark legacy of drug companies sponsoring and, and influencing university research, most recently, drug, um, most recently erupting in the op opioid crisis, should we now have business, businesses like IBM or Google, whose bottom line is profit, directing medical research? Instead of acknowledging the limits of machines, we now have a whole industry that's emerged to voting, correcting the AI. For example, the Leaders Prize in Canada is promising $1 million to a team that can develop an AI to automate fact-checking. While they rightly, rightly identify the, 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 the problem of the spread of in misinformation that, quote, jeopardizes the integrity of the democratic system all over the world, 
The contest fails to address the complexity of the problem and assumes a machine can perform a the job of a journalist. Firstly, the rise of misinformation is itself a product of corporations that generate profit from algorithms that promote extremist and sensationalist content that keeps viewers' eyes glued to their screens. They have sucked up all the advertisement revenue, which is how Google and Facebook make their money, from traditional media, but are not held up to the same standards. And they profit from fake news, are in the business of making money. So they have treated human fact-checking as an inconvenience at best. This was an article um, uh, from The Guardian about the fact-checkers that they had uh, hired and all the journalists well, most of them quit um, because they said, you know, Facebook actually has no interest in fact-checking. Okay, so, but more to the point, facts do not exist in a vacuum. They require an understanding of context and nuance that no machine is capable of. The truth of a news story is never self-evident. As Jonathan Stern has, has pointed out in his piece about this prize, fake news about art artificial intelligence and fake news, Journalists track down people, call them, investigate, analyze, and follow leads. Throwing more quick fix at AI, um, at a complex problem that the industry of AI has created, will do little to ameliorate the situation. A similar fake news challenge that was launched in 2016 concluded, quote, it won't be possible to fact check automatically until we've achieved human level artificial intelligence capable of understanding subtle and complex human, human interactions and conducting investigative journalism. Uh, as human level artificial intelligence is likely to remain a fiction, perhaps we should work on restoring journalism and regulating the platforms that circulate fake news. Consider yet another example of tweaking the machine. The solution to biased algorithms has been to include more diversity in research teams and data and more black faces and training sets. As Zoe uh, Zamudzi argues in her piece, bots are terrible at recognizing black faces, let's keep it that way. This tweaking only exasperates the problem of racial injustice, where blackness is often equated with criminality and where black populations have long been subject to surveillance and drastically out of proportion incarceration rates. As Ruha Benjamin explains in her book, The New Jim Code, current technologies, not unlike previous ones, are invested in controlling and containing race Algorithms pose as neutral, but determine what you see based on your race, your age, your income, your postal code, your gender. So from real estate ads, to job prospects, to health insurance, to jail sentences, you've already been pre-selected uh, by an algorithm, and you have no say in that matter. These quoted inequities, only serve to reinforce existing hierarchies and the status quo. Big data processing is not about the future. It automates and accelerates past and current discrimination. So what does the industry mean by ethical AI? 
Well, there's a well-funded projects in places like Georgia Tech and Good AI Institute in Prague that are working on developing ethical robots by having them read literature. Okay, so that is my you know area of expertise. Uh, but it seems that no literature prof professors uh, were invited. Um, so the robot on the front of page of The Economist issue that profiles this research is reading Kant's book about what is right and good. And on the actual cover, this is the, but on the actual cover, the robot's sitting on the stack of books that include like Marcus Aurelius and Nietzsche. So, so for someone who teaches the difficult works of Kant and Nietzsche, as I do in my literary theory classes, what can I say but that the computer scientists working on these projects must not have read them? Mark Riedel, funded by DARPA, Google, and Disney, is the director of the Entertainment Intelligence Lab at Georgia Tech. I should have just explained DARPA is the military wing of the American government. Um, so he describes... Um, uh, sorry, and uh, it's the de where they develop all the technology, like the work they're doing on, um, well, what some people call killer robots. Uh, so he describes, Georgia Tech, he describes reading as essentially pattern matching, where the actions of thousands of fictional protagonists can be averaged out by a computer to determine, quote, the correct behavior that robots can then imitate. Reading is reduced to ersatz bits of information. Comprehension is beside the point. A knowledge of literary tropes, narrative structures, hermeneutics, semiotics, and cultural and historical specificity, the key to reading in my field of literary studies, are also irrelevant. So too is deep reading, what Gayatri Spivak calls a training in the ethical imagination, or what Toni Morrison calls the art of reading, which requires a combination of listening, surrendering, remaining alert, and bringing your own con context to the table. Having spent a good deal of, of, of her life studying the reading brain, Marianne Wolfe, the cognitive neuroscientist, argues that knowledge, analytical thinking, capacity for sustained attention, and empathy for others depends on deep reading of print, the slow process of deep reading that triggers vision and language and imagination that Wolf describes as a neurological circus has nothing to do with speed and screens and ingesting massive amounts of data. If our digital age requires humans to skim the increasing number of words thrown at us daily, Deep reading counters the distracted, cluttered brain. Those who work in the industry know this well, and thus Steve Jobs, along with many other tech executives and engineers working in Silicon Valley, limited his own children's exposure to electronic devices. It's not uncommon for Silicon Valley kids and their UK counterparts to be sent to Waldorf schools that do not allow computers, even as the industry elites heavily push cell phones, laptops, and AI tutors in the lucrative market of education. Chris Anderson, the CEO of 3D Robotics and the father of five, explains why those in tech keep it from their children. He says, my kids accuse me and my wife of being fascist and overly concerned about tech, and they say that none of their friends 
have the same kind of rules. That's because we've seen the dangers of a technology firsthand. I've seen it in myself. I don't want to see it happen to my kids. The inevitability of a world structured by AI is everywhere, even as the debate uh, even as a debate is raging amongst experts about whether AI has hit uh, a wall um, and whether we're at the start of another AI winter. Francois Cholette, a researcher at Google, points out that, quote, people naively believe that if you take deep learning and scale it 100 times more layers and add 1,000 times more data, a neural net uh, will be able to do anything a human being can do. But that's just not true. And James Summers makes a similar point um, in his uh, article, uh, uh, AI Riding a One-Trick Pony. Whether AI research has stalled or not, however, we have to deal with the fallout um, of a world structured by the lucrative violation of privacy and the theft of personal data, the spread of disinformation, the proliferation of deep fakes and hate spewing bots, the manipulation of voters and consumers, capitalist and government surveillance, a population addicted to screens, the disenfranchisement of workers, and there was a great talk in the summer by Julian Posada on all the, all the labor that goes behind robots um, that then present as autonomous. But you know, you have all these micro, this micro work going on behind the, behind the scenes. Um, and the immense concentration of corporate wealth and power and the carbon footprint of an infrastructure built on power-hungry machines. So what do we do? Well, the appeal to the humanities has been to help fix the machine by teaching machines right from wrong or devising a universal moral code that can be turned into math or training AIs to have common sense. We should resist this model and instead respect the different epistemological approaches that structure the two fields. In other words, we need a paradigm shift that challenges the pervasive uh, language of collapse of the human and the machine. In the field of AI, the brain is described in terms of network circuits and pattern recognizers. But why are the differences between an electrical computational process um, that, that, that requires algorithms, huge data sets, and massive amounts of computing power, so very different from how human intelligence works, come to be understood as human-like. Rather than the computer serving as a metaphor for the brain, the brain has come to serve as a metaphor for the computer, and a circular logic is operating here. While the species has wrestled for centuries with the question of what it means to be conscious or what it means to be human, the field of AI has commandeered the debate and defined life consciousness in terms of algorithms and data processing. And then the inventions that operate in this fashion are declared to be human-like. In other words, the starting premise predetermines the conclusion and we're asked to accept that there's no difference between a machine and humans or other non-human animals. The complexity of biological and cultural life is made to defer to computational logic. And there's an entire industry of social and humanoid robots that encourages this view. 
oh, sorry, I just wanted to give you that. So this is actually, you know, an example, a very simple graph of what, how machine learning and how deep learning um, works, what we're talking about. But you see how you get to the end of it. In both cases, it works on a binary, right? Which is, which is not how humans work, but this works on a binary. So, um, This, this industry of social and humanoid robots that encourages this view. So David Levy, for instance, uh, argues robots will become our sex, love, marriage partners. And uh, at Boston Dynamics describes his do its dog as just like a biological dog. Sharp is marketing its robo-phone, um, a small humanoid robot that promises you to, quote, to know you better than anyone. While Pepper, a robot sold by the Japanese multinational internet uh, company SoftBank, is offering to be your friend. Priced at about $2,000 with a $120 a month data plan and an $80 a month damage insurance plan, expensive friend, the first thousand models sold out within a minute. While we're inundated with singing, dancing, acting, writing, and conducting robots, Note the prominently displayed uh, logo there, corporate brand on the conducting robot, as ABB is a, a supplier of industrial <coughs> robots and robot software. All in the attempt to convince people that machines are creative. Like reading, the definition of creativity is rewritten to suit the machine, as Arthur Miller does in his recent book, The Artist in This Machine, defining creativity as Problem solving, that's a quote from his work, is problem solving. We cannot begin to address the question of responsible AI or mitigate against its harms by fixing the machine. Instead, we need to understand the differences between machines that operate with big data, algorithms, and closed systems, and, 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 and precision, and human culture that requires nuances and ambiguity and context and openness in order to thrive. Otherwise, we end up overestimating the capacity of machines and expect them to perform the tasks that require human intelligence and or drastically reduce the complexity of tasks and create more problems. The humanities challenge the founding assumptions driving the field of AI, namely that humans are machines and that machines are capable of human-like cognition. We're machines, says Hinton. We're just produced biologically. More, most people doing AI don't have a doubt that we're machines. For many literature scholars, however, human as machine is one of the many historically and culturally specific metaphors that have been used to describe the species, from molded clay to shepherds of the earth to mere players on a stage who have their exits and their entrances. So this, there's nothing new about this tension. The tension between truth and narrative has a long history and you know can date it back to Plato kicking the poets out of the out of the Republic. Uh, but I won't get into that <laughs> right now. Um, so let me return uh, to fiction to ask what kind of anemic creature we produce in the claims to know the human. Scientists in the field, and then uh, the other thing I want to point to is that how the way that scientists in the field of AI and humanities scholars approach fiction very differently. So Alec Garland's 2015 film Ex Machina 
a mix between a modern day Frankenstein story sorry, and the Stepford Wives takes up the question of manufacturing humanoid machines with consciousness. Murray Shanahan, who's one of the scientific advisors on Ex Machina, is a research scientist at DeepMind and a professor of cognitive robotics at Imperial College in London. His book, Embodiment and the Inner Life, served as an inspiration for Alex Garland while he was writing the screenplay for Ex Machina. Shanahan is also the author of The Technological Singularity that considers the idea that the singularity, the takeover of artificially intelligent machines, has moved from the realm of science fiction to serious debate. Shanahan said when Garland asked him whether the film um, sort of felt right from the standpoint of working in the field, of someone working in the field, he responded, Shanahan responded, I have to say it really did. And Tony Prescott, who's at the Sheffield Robotics Group, um, uses, now uses the Garland test as an updated version of the Turing test as a way to measure human-like robots. These scientists read Ex Machina as about the future of AI. As a fiction person, I don't read fiction as prophecy, nor do I see it as about predicting the future. Rather, I read the film as defamiliarizing our own world and provoking questions. Like why, for instance, um, is Nathan's high-tech research lab set located in the midst of massive pristine national, natural estate with miles of forests and rivers and mountains. Just as the humans collapsed with the machine, technology and nature are made to, to seamlessly blend in this world as if they existed in complete harmony. In the world of AI, words like Twitter, Amazon, Apple, the cloud, encourage the idea of the continuity between nature and technology. In reality, of course, oops, sorry. Sorry, that was it, yeah. Um, in reality, of course, the $247 billion cloud computing industry funnels everything through massive centralized data centers operated like by giants like Amazon, Microsoft, and Google. And it has nothing in common with those little minute frozen liquid droplets in the sky. <coughs> and then, of course, another question you have is, oh, why are all the robots young, attractive women created and, and created by men? And what does this say about sexism in the tech industry? Well, a AI is often touted as being about a new future. It works with old paradigms. Algorithms constructed based on the data that engineers like Nathan select, so they're more likely to reproduce and disrupt the social uh, and cultural hierarchies of the day that determine such things as uh, the parameters of female beauty. Nathan builds Kyoko, a silent, submissive, scantily clad maid and sex toy to serve him, playing into all the racist stereotypes about compliant Asian women. He also designs Ava as white and cute with big eyes and a round childlike face, and she's a, di a, a design to appeal to the sensitive, nice tech guy, Nir uh, uh, Caleb. Shifting to the industry, Hiroshi Ishiguro, so he's the one with the Geminoids, um, uh, uh, claims that his Erica is the most beautiful uh, robot in the world. So when I was in Japan, 
I asked him, I asked one of the assistants at the lab, I said, okay, so how did you, you know, how did you come up with this model of beauty? Um, what determined it and what was it based on? Like, what was this universal code that, you know, this beautiful robot supposed to appeal to everyone? And the response was vague. Ishiguro says of Erika, I used images of 30 beautiful women, mixed up their future features, and used the average for each to design the nose and so on. And that means she should appeal to everyone. So which photos of women did, did Ishiguro find beautiful? Which noses and which eyes and which race and what skin color? Of the roughly 3.7 billion women in the world, which 30 photos were selected to produce this universal that would appeal to everyone. Even if we ignore the question of whether beauty lies not in averaging, but in uniqueness, algorithms always reductive, necessarily reductive, strangle the sweep of history and culture in order to masquerade as neutral and universal. And then again, we might ask, why does Nathan um, emphasize feeling instead of telling Caleb how the AI works. So while well, Nathan refers to Ava as a rat in a maze and the robot is given the single goal to escape the compound, Nathan discourages Caleb from thinking, wanting him to address only his emotions. Caleb wants to talk to Nathan about how Ava works, about the programs, algorithms, and abstractions that produce Ava and whether they are stochastic, for example. But Nathan interrupts him to ask how he feels about Ava and how Ava feels about him. Lonely, isolated, and orphaned at 15, Caleb loses his parents in a car accident, which he witnesses from the back seat. He learns coding while he's recovering and grieving in the hospital for the year that follows this traumatic event. Nathan plays on Caleb's vulnerability and encourages Caleb to further succumb to his, to his seduction by technology. Caleb was selected based on his search engine inputs. He has no family, no girlfriend, and Ava's look matches his pornography search profile. So the shiny metallic computer-like body and skull of Ava are designed to attract the alienated tech geek. This everyman is locked in a windowless claustrophobic research facility and made to sign a standard non-closure disagreement. And we're all familiar with those, of course. The agreement predictably protects Nathan's corporate privacy while Caleb is forced to surrender his, a ubiquitous practice with social media sites that are after your data what's referred to often now as the new oil. Caleb signs only to discover that he, as Nathan tells him, is the real test. The tech nerd has been reduced to the very data he almost must generate. In one scene, Caleb cuts his arm uh, and bleeds to make sure he is not a robot, though at this point, the distinction between the man and the machine has already started to collapse not because the robot has become more human-like, but because the human has been reduced to a machine. Caleb is produced and shaped by algorithms. His identity outside these codes has dissolved, and the end of the film finds him pounding on the windows of the secure soundproof compound formerly inhabited by the robots. 
in the end, the real monster, um, in the end, the real monster that the lab has engineered is Caleb. The data mined human is reduced to components selected by a computer search engine that has come to define him. In the course of the film, Nathan comes back to what he and Caleb refer to as the chess problem. Is the robot working in a closed program loop or does it know it is playing chess? In other words, are Ava's emotions mere simulations or is it conscious and capable of displaying a real emotion? Nathan provides an third option, that Ava is pretending to like Caleb because he's a means to an end. And the burgeoning uh, industry of social robots and AI is invested in playing that same game. So let me just um, conclude here. The techno-utopians and transhumanists who look forward to the singularity or emerging of machines and man as this next step in human evolution, like Nathan, propose that, as you heard in that film clip, that quote, one day the AIs are gonna look back on us on the same, the same way we look at fossil skeletons on the plains of Africa. An upright ape living in dust with crude language and tools all set for extinction. But in reality, of course, this linear teleological model um, of evolution has nothing to do with evolution. Uh, that is better thought by F as a bush, according to evolutionary biologists. Humans may indeed join the other species headed for extinction, but it'll have nothing to do with a robot takeover. As we enter into what's been called the sixth extinction caused by humans who contribute to that rapid eradication of the biodiversity of the planet on which they depend, machines built to maximize profit are unlikely to be our best option for the future. And the fu as the future inevitably dates, we might also want to consider the infrastructure that we leave behind. Thanks. Nice.